Welcome to Flow Stars, candid conversations between Dr. Peter O'Toole and the big hitters of flow cytometry. Brought to you by Beckman Coulter at Bite Size Bio. Today on Flow Stars, I'm joined by Kylie Price, Head of Research Technology at the Maligan Institute of Medical Research in New Zealand. And we discuss her instrumental role in developing philanthropic partnerships. Often people, you know, give money and you buy something and people go, well, great, thanks. Here's a photo of your machine sitting in the lab. But you want to keep them engaged, you know, show them what it's doing. How? Being a major core facility in New Zealand means she gets some really interesting samples. Fish sperm, let's send it to the Malaga, they'll be able to do it. So we get all sorts of random samples. How she finds time to relax. We did get a dive and um, 25 metres away from us were humpback whales and they were calling. And why she doesn't mind making mistakes. And so I don't mind making mistakes. And, and I think if you, if you set the bar too high that you think you have to be perfect and you have to know everything, then you're, you'll stop yourself. All in this episode of Flow Stars. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole from University of York and on Flow Stars today, I'm joined by Kylie Price from the Maligan Institute of Medical Research. Kylie, uh, good evening. Good evening. Nice to, nice to see you. Yeah, no, thank you very much for joining me today. <laughs> Kylie, in flow cytometry, what, what got you interested in flow cytometry to start with? Uh, well, um, I got a job at the Maligan Institute about 18 years ago. And uh, when I was having my interview, um, I was going for a research officer position uh, in the multiple sclerosis group. And uh, during the interview, it was a you know, sort of bog standard interview. And then the, the guy that I ended up working for asked me, he's like, do you know how to use fax machines? And I was like, please, I know how to use fax machines. I worked at a petrol station before, I didn't tell him that. <clears throat> and so I was like, yeah, sure. And then he walked me past as we were, you know, going for the walk around the Institute. And he's like, oh, and by the way, here are the fax machines. And it was a Vantage at the time, a fax Vantage and a fax sort. And I was like, oh, uh-oh. that's not what I thought. But of course, I didn't say anything. And I got the job. And then I befriended, very quickly befriended the person who did know something about flow cytometry, who's one of my best friends still, Joanna Roberts. And uh, yeah, and she taught me flow cytometry. So that was my interface with flow cytometry, my introduction to flow cytometry. Uh, And I guess I started to appreciate the power of the technology over time. I didn't love it to start with. Um, I'm a molecular biologist and biochemist. And so I didn't really understand why we weren't looking inside the cells. It seemed to all be about the outside of the cells predominantly. And so, um, yeah, it took me a while to warm up to flow cytometry. Uh, and then I guess the, the big moment with me and flow came when my friend Joanna, two years after I'd been at the Maligan, got a job at EPFL in Switzerland. And so she was leaving and I was looking for a new opportunity. And she was like, have you thought about doing my job? And I said, no, you look like you run a spaceship, to be honest. I'm not quite sure I could do that, the vantage, you know. Um, and as I asked her to list all the pros and cons of what she thought the job, you know, was and could be, and I could see a a space for myself. I could see a way that I could build a career. Um, and I mean, I'm passionate about science and I love technology. And so, um, yeah, I went for it and I guess that's how I came to flow cytometry. I love your terminology. It was like a spaceship and actually, I don't think this is a vantage, is it? No, that's an Epix Ultra. That was when I was in Spain. They um they had one of those knocking about and they didn't really know how to how to run it. And so uh, neither did I, but having had a background experience on Avantage, I read the manual and got them to be able to sort uh, neutrophils from zebrafish on it. So that was my big achievement in one month when I was in Murcia in Spain. Oh, I say it's called an Epix. I'm never sure so. what was epic about it, but there you are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was lucky. I was, I was born into the MoFlow to start with. So actually, no, Fax Calibre with the sort mm. was my first. Uh, was that the arm, the slipper? <laughs> yeah. yeah, the one that so, yeah, you must remember that. And when it started to get blocked, it go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then nothing. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, so, familiar actually, sound. Really similar story. I, I, I knew nothing about facts when uh, 
the university got a new confocal and a new fact caliber at the time and they needed someone to run it and it was a postdoctoral position to operate it so you could do research which was brilliant oh, right but yeah, it, I, I remember going back and doing a lot of reading really fast because <laughs> i had yeah. I was, a new competition had experience of these and i did <laughs> so it's a, the naivety uh, but you also did confocal so i think this is looks like a well look looking at the knobs in front it looks like a, a like a sp1 mm, an sp something so i think it's probably an overstatement to say i do confocal that's me visiting um, a confocal uh, core facility when i was working at the senior so i did my sabbatical in spain in 2012 in the flow cytometry suite with lola martinez and while i was there i wanted to visit the different core facilities so i spent time with with um with the core facility manager and had a look at confocal and what it could do and decided when i left spain that there was something that maligan should have so we that was one of the things that take that i took home not literally that confocal but um we got some funding and we've got our own confocal now and i've got somebody who who runs that a brilliant microscopist alfonso schmidt so he's doing really well so i i think um microscopy and flow cytometry have to be together I think they're just so powerful but yeah it would be completely remiss of me to pretend that I know how to run that thing <laughs> and it looks like convalaria on, on, the, on the side of it so that's interesting so because in some places obviously the flow cores are independent to the microscopy cores you have some microscopy cores emerge with the flow yep. when I say microscopy I'm referring to light microscopy at this point and then you have some light microscopy cores that are merged with electron microscopy. Which do you think are the best marriage? Well, I don't have an electron microscope, so I don't, I can't really talk about that. So I think, I mean, light microscopy and flow cytometry um, make, make sense to me, but because, uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that's just what I've got. So I don't know, they're, they're the ones that, I think there's a there's it depends what you're trying to look at I suppose and what resolution you need, um, but for what we need the confocal microscopes doing fine and maybe one day there'll be a push to uh, want to look at like single cell transcriptomics or something like that and and dig a bit deeper, but yeah but I, but honestly at microscopy is not even though I you know I've got this core facility the Hugh Green Cytometry Centre and we have um, kind of mini core facilities within them. I am not the expert in all of the um, umbrella, uh, all of the areas under the umbrella. So I've got the experts in place, um, but I, I guess that's the way that we've, we've had to build it. We're a small institute. We've got like 80 scientists, 120 people. Um, and, you know, you kind of, we're down here at the bottom of the world and you've got to try and uh, work within the systems that you've got and the size that you've got. So we don't have enough to have big, Core facilities we don't have enough people so we've got me and a lot of my ideas and then bringing in the technology and trying to find trying to match the needs of the scientists really what do they need and how can that help advance their science so yes. that's the the technology approach i take i guess you, you mentioned the single cell uh transcriptomics single cell phenotyping with the, the really high plex now with the, the nanostring type technologies the 10x codex chip cytometry yep. Yeah. If you go on, uh, all sorts of different technologies out there. <clears throat> they are not necessarily costly to, to purchase in some cases, but it does need a fair degree of uh, optimization, so expertise support. How well yeah. connected is the country as a whole? So if one of your users wanted to get into single cell, can you outsource? Do you, know, do you have those networks to enable you to go elsewhere, to take the academics and go, oh, we can't do it, you know, yeah, it doesn't matter how UK is a pretty big country with lots of very strong research institutes. Even the UK can't say, well, we'll have it ourselves. You know, yeah. some things we have to say, yes, we can do this, but other bits we'll outsource and we collaborate over here. Yeah. What's it like down New Zealand? Well, I mean, you know, we have to we collaborate a lot, you know, because it depends what what it is and, and what the need is. I mean, I don't know that I can speak for the whole country, but uh, I can speak for Wellington and the Maligan Institute. Um, but, you know, we've got a, um, the BD Rhapsody, for example, so we, we can do single cell RNA-seq, but for us, 
you know, if we're lucky, we might do six to 10 experiments a year at the moment. And they're data rich and, and that's fine. That's what I expect for the size of our institute. We've got six research groups. If they all did one experiment a year, that'd be great. Um, and it's not, a very, it's not a high cost experiment, but it means that we can generate the libraries, but to buy in all of the sequence and stuff would make absolutely no sense. Yeah. So you can see that uh, once it's cDNA, we can send it to China, to Aussie, to wherever to get it sequenced to Dunedin. There is a place. So I think you you know you've got to look at what the the user base and the user need is. So it's not about getting every single technology, but just the ones. Particularly, we you've got models or tissue samples that don't travel. You know where you're not going to be able to um, to fix them and send them in any way. So with with some of the animal models, then you want to have that technology in-house, but they're all decisions that you make, that you would make as well, you know? So you've got a Rhapsody. Yep. How many cytometers do you have? We've got um, six cytometers. We've got four Auroras. We've got an LSR2, uh, a Fortessa, they're both SORPs. Uh, so that's on the benchtop analyzer. And then we've got an Influx. And we've just purchased the Aurora CS, the cell sorter. So that's winging its way to New Zealand. <laughs> that okay so that i know that's a lot yeah you just said you, you've got six research groups you've got 80 groups it was 120 people that's a lot of cytometers for that yes. number of people we um we have external clients so we have a lot of people who realize that we've got i mean we we've got the most advanced core facility in the country so we have people from industry come and use our cytometers we get, I get some really cool samples. You know, we run the SCARSA, the sperm chromatin structure assay. So we're the, the only place that can run that in New Zealand, you know, so we run that for the fertility associates and others. Um, and then somehow, you know, you kind of get out there that, oh, this person runs sperm. So then I often get, someone will be like, oh, I've got some harpocker fish, fish sperm, let's send it to the Maligan, they'll be able to do it. So we get all sorts of random samples um, and you know they'll be get uh, what are some of the fun ones are like bacteria from Antarctic sea ice wanting to see going back through time through the ice yeah. columns and looking at the um, the activity and matching matching the metabolic activity to the co2 in the ice and and that you know microalgae and phytoplankton and all sorts of stuff so it's not just us so so I, I we did a fair bit of uh, sperm research uh, for oh, yeah. Yeah, with Bourne's primarily uh, with one of the local companies, actually not so local, but one of the companies uh, in, in the UK. <clears throat> I, I, I just love the fact that some people go, oh, I really want a daughter or I really want a son. Can you help? It's like, nah. <laughs> no, not that kind of help. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you wonder if that ever happens anywhere in the world, though? Uh, <laughs> no comment. <laughs> yeah, no, probably best not to. God, so, so when you took over this role, yes, I don't think the facility was anywhere near as big as it is today. So, have you just surfed that wave really well and, and brought all the users with you and gotten sucked in because it's a good service? How is it? How has it been so successful? Because that is a huge number of analyzers. Yeah, so the, the success, I guess, in the number of cytometers also has to do with um, my relationship with philanthropy. And um, I guess I've got a pretty good track record of um, working with, so the Maligans are publicly funded charity, uh, which means that we, you know, we often have people through tour groups through and we can tell them what we're doing. Uh, and you can form relationships with foundations or families or trusts or things like that. And I've been really fortunate. I've um, uh, in 2009, I met an incredible family and uh, the Hugh Green family, the Hugh Green Foundation, and they are amazing. Like they are, um, they're such beautiful people, humble people. Um, who you know, Hugh Green made a phenomenal amount of money in his lifetime um, in engineering. Yep, yep. That's why you've got to move, not me. So, so, so um, which one's Hugh Green in this picture? Hugh is, uh, I can't point, I guess he's the um, the elderly gentleman there. And next to him uh, in red is his wife, Moira, and their son, John. Um, and that's the director in the sharp leather jacket. That's the director of the Maligan. 
and I and so that was the first donation that we got from them. Um, we got you know a hundred thousand um, uh, dollars back in two thousand and ten. So we had a hundred thousand dollars every year for three years, and we built our relationship slowly over time. And I mean, they, um, you know, their passion is um, medical research and health equity and education equity um, and helping people out of poverty. And when, when I met them, you know, they came through and uh, with a big entourage of their family and they were looking to donate. And we heard that there's a family coming through. They might donate anywhere between, I don't know, it was like $5,000 to $500,000. And so, um, you know, staff at the Maligan um, were asked to put together proposals. So I put together a proposal. And I mean, the cool thing about cytometry or technology is we've got the stuff that can well people, you know. So I was like, oh, pop the lid, look at these lasers, you know, and get everyone excited. Um, and then it turns out, you know, they, they did the, how did you get into this? And we've got a connection, a farming connection, you know, we're, we're kind of farm people. Um, and uh, salt of the earth types, I guess. And so, and so, um, you know, we, we, we both work with horses and cattle and stuff like that. And so they really liked um, the technology. And the good thing is I asked to go last because then after they'd seen all of the amazing research that we do at the Maligan, which is really cool stuff, you know, all helping, you know, people were trying to find cures for diseases that affect the immune system and cancer and allergy and asthma and all of these cool things. Um, so trying to find those cures, when they got to me, it was like, well, if you liked anything that you saw, I support it all, you know? And so that worked out well. Um, and so if you can't decide, just support cytometry and it supports everything. Uh, so we, yeah, we started our relationship and they have um, they've, um, purchased most of the technology. And then I've negotiated some pretty good deals as well. I have to say along the way. So I'm getting pretty good at negotiating. And, and, and a good, a good, we got a good advertising board for the companies that go in there as well. So, cause you're not, yeah, company can give you something, but unless it's good, you're not going to use it and you're not going to publicize it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, of course, so, yeah. So, so, it's, so it's a very strong endorsement to have it there. So I, I think it's amazing. And I think it's really good to hear how you've you know, been agile in finding funding. Yeah. And uh, I will plug core facilities at this point because you're right. You know, all those people were bidding against each other. Suddenly you've got people fighting internally against each other, even though these are colleagues. Yeah. And you won, but they all won as well. Yeah, because they all could enable yeah. it. So actually that investment has helped many, many different groups, which wouldn't have been possible otherwise. And I wonder how many people watching or listening have thought about really it, it was yeah. aggressively going after it isn't the right sort of word. But, you know, people do want to donate. They do want to make a difference. They do want to support research and science. And wow, what a way to hedge your bets. You know, yeah. this isn't. No, I, I mean, I, I, I joke, but it, you know, genuinely, it's true. Like because yeah. we can, we can, and then with the extra funding and our time, we can help people with applications. You know, so if somebody, you know, wants to look at human skin and they don't have the time to develop the the essay, then my staff can do that. You know, and I can do that. We can help. Um, and and so then you get to see the power of the technology at its. I think what I'm really interested in is maximizing the capability so that there's no stone left unturned. Like what can it do? What else can it do? You know, so really pushing it. But then feeding that back. If you have got a philanthropic relationship, I think, you know, I've got I've kind of been asked to give these types of talks about um, you know developing stakeholder relationships and maintaining them. But feeding that information back to them and showing them what a difference they're making, you know, often people, you know, give money and you buy something and people go, well, great, thanks. Here's a photo of your machine sitting in the lab, but you want to keep them engaged, you know, show them what it's doing, even and find the way in a science communicator kind of way, um, find the way to explain to lay people what it means, because some of the findings, they're not all groundbreaking, but they're important, you know someone finds a new receptor or a new cell type and we don't know what that means but let them share in the um, excitement you know that that brings that like well what could it be and here are the cool ways that we're going to try and address that and I think that's the the passion that you you can bring um, and and the experience that you can bring to your um, supporters. And, uh, I guess that reflects blue sky research as well because you never know 
where it will help ultimately. Uh, maybe the best thing is the mRNA vaccines. Uh, so the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, they weren't developing this for COVID. They right. developed the concepts and then how quickly they rolled it out successfully. Uh, it's, it's quite mind-blowing. It was never about COVID though. And that research has suddenly benefited the whole world in a big way, the whole world. Yeah, years of research. Yeah, I mean, like they, they did a lot of work, and the incremental. I, what I like about the mRNA story is it's it's a weaving of um, strands coming together because there there are the you know the base modifications, the little pieces, the like the widgets and the changes that they made to the RNA that made it more stable, and then there's the ionizable lipids for the lipid nanoparticles, and then there's the technology. There's the microfluidic devices. You know, and all of that merging together at the perfect moment in a perfect storm where people needed a fast solution because mRNA, you know, it had been around or siRNA had been around. Um, the the Onpatrol was um, what uh, patented or not patented. Um, the FDA approved it in like 2018, so it was the first um, RNA kind of product on the market. Um, but it, you know, you've got this that it was starting to happen, and you just needed something like this to really catalyze it. And that's it. And that's what I agree. You don't know what what the technology could be useful for. But if it's if it's there and it's being used and being explored, then that's when fun stuff happens. So you mentioned you're from a farming background and you sent me some pictures and oh, <laughs> who'd have thought I was a beekeeper? But no. It's, yeah, I know. Amazing. <laughs> yes. This is you in a, a bee suit. I know, I know that's not the right term for it. To, yeah, yep, that's right. We um we had bees. We had them for like five years, and um they died of varroa mite, which is really sad. You know, this this colony collapse is a real thing. Um, and um in the end, then I was pregnant as well. So then we decided to like just you know let the bees go for a bit. We, we'll get them back. Um, my son's three at the moment, so I kind of wait want to wait for him to be able to be just stand still, you know, I don't mind him being around the bees, but it's that if he's going to run away while we're trying to lift the hives and stuff, I'd rather that I can trust him to like not run on the road or something. So as soon as, as soon as he's trustworthy enough to listen and stay still, then we'll get our bees back. But having bees is incredible. Like I think from a ecological point of view, they're really important. You know, I'm a bit of a greenie and, um, and I think it's, it's really important that people do everything they can to help bees. And I mean, we got like 45 kgs of honey in our first year. It was absurd. Wow. How many hives? We had two, two hives and then... Um, big pardon? 40 kilos out of two. Yeah, 45. Um, but stacked. We had, we had six supers, they called them. Or we had five supers and then the, the brood box at the bottom. It was a bumper year. <laughs> well that's why you don't need to have them at the moment you're still eating off that yeah no no find way to get rid of my honey and all my friends benefit from when we hit these that's for sure and so this this other picture i presume also from the farm is yeah that's me riding a horse in um canada so my my dad was originally from canada and uh, i went and had a white christmas with my aunties and uncles on my way back from europe after my sabbatical and so uh, I did grow up on a horse farm, and so, but I'd never ridden a horse in snow. That's new to me. That's not New Zealand. Okay. Not and, that we don't snow, but. And you mentioned your conservation work, and I think this is one of your conservation yeah. pictures. Yeah, that's right. That's my husband and I, Federico. Uh, and this was where we were we were trapping. So we we did uh, we trapped like uh, rats and stoats in the Remotaka Forest Park, and they've got kiwis they've released. You know, our flightless bird as opposed to the people. Um, <laughs> they've they've um, released kiwis into the park, but kiwis are really endangered and um, there are a bunch of predators that um, eat them at, or their eggs. And so what we do is you go um, into, the, into the park and then off, um, off the track and then every, every so often you replace the eggs. There are you know, traps every so many meters. Um, and then you put an egg into the trap and get rid of the kill if there was any, if you were lucky enough to get a stoat or a possum sometimes, but possums weren't supposed to go in there, uh, or rats. So yeah, I did that until I was five months pregnant. And then I handed over the reins to the director of the Institute, him and his wife, Franca, who are also greenies. So they've got our route and one day we want it back, Graham. <laughs> Which explains the egg, the egg carton. 
in that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So yes. Okay. So, so you have your farm. What else do you have on your farm besides bees? Um, well, so the, there's the farm that I grew up in, and then yeah. I'm a city slicker now. So I mean, we've got chickens. Um, we've had chickens in the past and bees, but you can have those in sort of. Well, I mean, not complete city. You know, not city like maybe. I don't know. My husband's from Buenos Aires, so not city like that. You know, not not concrete block. We've got a we've got a forest around us, and you know, a fair amount of land. But I wouldn't call it a farm, having grown up on a real farm. Okay, but and enough, your husband from Buenos Aires, which explains. Yeah, that's right. So it's a uh, football match, soccer. Um, football, actually, yeah, that was that was football. I think we went and watched. Um, yeah, there was a football match. We we're watching um, the RGs play the All Whites, which is just a terrible thing to watch from a Kiwi's perspective because we're terrible at football and they're amazing. So, but yeah, no, that's a new, a new flag that I support. It's an, it's an incredible country. So I've never been, so it, it does sound, I say South America is, is just very attractive. Southern South America sounds very attractive to go to. <laughs> Did you see Lionel Messi as well then? Okay. Uh, actually, when I saw, um, I did see him, not at that game, where, for our first wedding anniversary when we were in Spain, I got us tickets to um, the, the what's it called? The one in Barcelona, the Camp El Campo or Camposino, something like that, I can't remember. That one, we went to the big one in Barcelona and we saw okay. Messi there. So the new yeah. camp, <laughs> that one. <laughs> yeah. So back to, back to work. Uh, yeah. What's been your, who, who has been your inspiration or inspirations uh, in the work environment? Um, you know, I think I, I get inspired by aspects of people. I don't know if I've got a, like a, a whole package, no yep. offence to anybody. Um, but, you know, I think I, um, one of the first people that I met in cytometry was Bill Telford. And Bill's incredible. You know, he's an incredible cytometrist. He's an incredible teacher. Um, he's so generous with his time and his knowledge. And I mean, I've definitely been inspired by him. And and I love watching him tinker in the lab. You know, with his lasers. And you know, he's he's just such an amazing um, human being. And uh, I've done a, I've done a lot of travel with him. I, he got me into the live education task force with ISAC. Uh, which was which has been amazing I stopped that to have my family but I got to go up to sort of five different places and and that was all through Bill and I, I really love you know his I, I think that's a big part of you know being in a core facility it's what we do we teach and when you see people who who are not only really good at teaching but also just generous you know generous with their knowledge they're not they're not keeping it to themselves or they're not trying to put up that wall that they're the only ones who know, you know, just really sharing. And so I really admire that. Um, and yeah, I mean, just, I've, I see lots of different people doing great things everywhere, you know? So you say it's not just about sharing, uh, not keeping the knowledge to yourself. And one of the, the vital things in science is to actually publish what you do, because you can talk about it, but until you publish it, it doesn't get widely adopted, widely known, accepted. And your publication, you know, for a core facility, your publication track record is exceptional. Oh, thank you. Um, a lot of people who run course don't get to publish that much. And you've done quite a lot of innovative stuff. I guess the Aurora's landed on your lap beautifully to really exploit uh, and, and yeah, develop yeah. applications around it. Yeah, yeah, we, I mean, you know, that was, uh, that was part of, uh, I mean, I had to sell the Aurora's, you know, like I had to sell it to the senior leadership team. It was a risk. You know, we're isolated. It was a risk on both parts. I think Cytec had to say, okay, what are we going to, are we going to send a cytometer to New Zealand? Like who's, there's going to be one in New Zealand. Are, you know, who's going to support it? How many are going to go to Australia? And we were early adopters. So, you know, I did a good job, I think, of convincing Ray and Lanigan and co um, that we, we would be able to look after them, you know, that we're competent enough to service them if they help us. We can do some of the stuff ourselves, um, which they were really good with. Um, and so there's that, you know, there's that two-way street. So there was an opportunity to, to try the technology, but it wasn't known at the time, wasn't known whether it would be as good as what it sounded. So there was there was the risk element, but 
a part of it was if it is as good as what it sounds then we've got there's some low-hanging fruit if you like like there's a way to be like look you can do this with an aurora and you can do that with an aurora um but what I what I in our team and Laura Ferrer Font who's in my team she's a postdoc and a senior scientist um in the team and you know what I really encourage her to do is to to set the standards for our for our for, for all of our scientists you know and then publish so that it's the standard for for everyone if you like but you know what does it take to get top quality data how do you use these things correctly to really make them sing if you like and so um that's something that that she's worked incredibly hard on and SciTech have been really supportive um and yeah and but when I think the other aspect is um finding if you're going to be bringing in a new piece of technology finding the internal early adopters so getting the the postdocs or the somebody and selling it to them. So this is where I think science communication is really important. So saying to them, I mean, I said to one of one of the um, guys who's published using uh, using the um, Auroras, said, you know, you're about to leave. You're finishing your postdoc. You're going to go back to Europe. Um, this could be a way that you've got an edge. You know, as long as where you're going is going to get an Aurora, <laughs> but we can, you know, can see if we can help make that happen somehow. But you know, what if what if you what if you've got this expertise that people want? And so why don't you invest your time and really see what you can do? And, and some of the people have got really complex samples, you know, highly autofluorescent that lend themselves well to this type of technology. So gut, for example, or lung or brain, or looking for um, really rare cell types and where the the quietness um, of the detectors in the red actually really helps the signal to noise ratio and you know those kinds of things so I think selling it and getting people to really adopt it and show everyone else what it can do is really important I, I think that applies to most technologies uh, each new totally. there's always going to be a niche for each system uh, unique selling points for, for each one that comes out and it does have to be maximized but what's your yeah. favorite publication then that you've authored or co-authored? Not, not necessarily your most successful, but just what is your favourite one? Um, gosh, uh, my favourite publication. Hmm. Hmm. Well, gosh, I, I wrote one about, I can't remember the name of it now, but I wrote one about uh, like laser light and the history of lasers. And I enjoyed that because it was a, it was a chance to do the reading I probably should have done, the in-depth reading. <laughs> you know how sometimes papers like really make you focus? Yeah. Um, and no I think that was, Yeah. <laughs> ah, ah, see, I can tell a joke without knowing it. So, um, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so, yeah, basically, I think it was, it was really good. And I got to work with a PI at, at the Institute who I admire. Um, and it was the kind of project that put us together and I got to spend time with somebody who's, you know, just brilliant, Mike Berridge. And uh, so, you know, those those kinds of things, I like that about papers, the collaboration and the collaborative nature where you get to, you know, talk to other people and, and learn from them. I think that's something I really like is learning from people. So from your favourite publication, have you ever had any darker periods, some real difficult times during your career? Uh, that you found most challenging? I think, um, you know, I think every career has its has its ups and downs. Um, I think in my cytometry career, probably I had a hard moment doing my masters. I had a I had a rough, had a rough supervisor and a rough relationship. And so that was that was really difficult, you know, that was difficult to come out of and, and it was difficult to move on from. And those things, you know, happen. You just gotta ante up uh, and carry on but I think you know what what happens I guess for me is I, I I feel like a bit of a I have visions of what we could do you know great things that we can do and then I can find funding to do them you know and and then I can maybe I can sell them and sometimes um, you know the the wind will change and something that you might have invested in quite heavily an idea that looked like it was all going to happen you know gets moved away but I'm a pretty positive person. 
and I think you just learn your lessons, you know, it's like, well, I, nothing's in vain. I think there's always something to be taken away and learned from whatever you do. So I don't really, I don't really feel like I have that many hard <coughs> stories, hardships. Okay, so on a brighter note then, this is yeah. your, this is your family. So your two children uh, yes. and your husband. So how old are they now? Sienna is five, uh, five and a half, and Santiago is three and four months. And they are amazing. They're like the best things ever, ever. Uh, and my husband, uh, Federico, he's seven years younger than me, scandalous. And um, no, and they're, they're just amazing. They, they're the brightest lights, cutest little people I've ever met. Of course, every parent's going to say that and think that. But uh, no, they, they, I just, I live for them. I love it. I love being a mum. And I wasn't sure, you know, it's like one of those things. I'm an, I'm a geri I was a geriatric mum, as they say, um, and which is, you know, over 35. Um, and, you know, I just, but I was, I'm happy. I, I did a lot of travel and, uh, and I was really ready to, to have them. But yeah, I wasn't really sure, you know, what kind of mum I would be. And it turns out, I think I'm pretty good. <laughs> no. <clears throat> Were you worried about your career when you started a family? Yeah, no, that's a good good question. Um, I I'm kind of strategic, and so I my my involvement with societies and everything was all kind of planned around my family because I was like, well, if I'm not going to work, I'll take nine months maternity leave, um, and you know, which is um, amazing in some countries and not that amazing in others. Depends where you're from. <laughs> But, um, but it, it felt right. It felt like a nice amount of time. And I really wanted to, to be there and give myself to that. But, um, you know, I didn't want to lose complete momentum. So what I decided to do was get involved in societies. So, um, but I have to say, actually, at one point, uh, Adrian Smith, who you may know, um, I, I was invo involved in hosting a conference here in Wellington, so um, an ACS conference, and um, it had gone really well, and at the end of the conference, he was like, hey, he was the president of the Australasian Cytometry Society, the ACS, and he was like, hey, you should, you know, you should really think about putting, throwing your, you know, hat in the ring to be president, and I was like, oh, no, don't know, I don't, I'm not sure I can even do that, like, I don't, I'm not sure, you know. And he was like, oh, you should really give it a go. And I was like, well, actually, between you and me, I want to start a family and that's not going to work. And he's like, it doesn't matter, just do it. So I can't claim full, you know, um, ownership of that idea. But I was like, actually, he planted the seed. So I was like, well, I'll see. And then it turned out that that worked. I got voted in as president. And so I was president while I was on maternity leave. Um, came back just in time for the conference. And, you know, when you, I could do all of these things from home. I could advertise for the society. I organized all sorts of things. I had workshops right up until two weeks before I, I gave birth, you know, like uh, international proliferation workshops and stuff. And I so- Proliferation just before we gave birth, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I know, you know, just getting right into it. Taking personal ownership of proliferating. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, I think I'm, I merged it. Uh, but I also think, you know, New Zealand, um, we've got a culture that uh, appreciates and understands work-life balance. I think I work hard. I think I work, I, when I come to work, I work hard and I get everything done that I can, but I drop the axe when I go home on, on my work. I'm like, see you later work. The only person, like if Graham, the director rings and wants something, then I'll, I'll do it. And he knows that, um, and he doesn't abuse that, thankfully. Um, but but otherwise, it's when I'm at home, I'm with my family, and and I and family means a lot to me. So um, I think you can you can do it. Um, and you know, if you look at my CV, there's no gap from me having been away. There's president of the ACS, and there's something else for the when I was away with my my son. So you know, you can you can do it seamlessly but now you'll know my secret <laughs> it's not you that your family means everything to you now this is a picture of your two children really young on a climbing wall yeah so, um it's great isn't it? Uh, it it is but then so so they're just on a small bouldering wall at this yeah, moment in time yeah and then this is you on a insanely high bit of rock climbing <laughs> yourself yeah. 
yeah. and another picture of you just about yeah. to go into the abyss. Now, you say you love your family and yet you're training them to jump off mountains or climb up. Uh, them. Training up the them to be strong, to hold on to the mountain and not let go. Do it. It's amazing. Why wouldn't you? No, I love climbing. I, I love being, I mean, I love outdoors and mountaineering and hiking and biking and whatever, yoga, diving, you name it. I'm a hugely outdoorsy person. And our kids uh, have come along for the journey. So that, it's amazing what they can do. I'm well impressed with how, long, how far they can hike already. Um, there might be a few, you know, treats left on the path to get them there, but they can still do it. Uh, no, and, and I mean, climbing's oh, it's just such a, such a joy. And that one, the, the one where you said the crazy, scary one, what's scary about that, that's called an erect. So when you're climbing on the corner, I don't know. Yeah, that one, when you're climbing yep. on, the, on the corner. Yep. And that feels more exposed. That feels scarier because actually from your perspective, when you're on the corner, then you just feel like it goes out to nowhere. So it's even more amazing. But yeah, no, I do. It on a corner though. What was that? Can't be grippier on a corner. <laughs> no, no, it's all about finding the placeholds. It's all about looking, look, 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 and try, and then maybe fail, but try again. <laughs> my my youngest climbs rather well, and he's uh, training my youngest to climb at the moment, so a bit of it. But I guess if all goes wrong, you can just get. You say you like going across land and adventure, and you also scuba dive. Yes, yes, I love to scuba dive. That one's a weird one. That was a um, uh, that was a, a wreck dive in New Caledonia, uh, and on the mast of the wreck, so this massive ship about twenty eight meters down, um, there was a, a bike hanging from the mast of the ship. So yeah, I mean, I thought it would be pretty funny to get on. The chain doesn't work. I found out. <laughs> <laughs> Horse riding, climbing, beekeeping, uh, trekking, cycling, raising a family, running a core facility, president societies. You do a load with Isaac, which we'll touch on in a minute. So in New Zealand, you have more time, more hours in the day than you do up here. No, no, I don't know how I do it. I have, um, I have some good support. I have good wraparound support. Um, maybe I'm efficient and I delegate lots. Do, do you ever have any? Do you ever have any just downtime where you just sort of stop? I'm an active relaxer, so they, though that was my downtime. You know, diving is the most relaxing thing. I mean, you're just like ee, 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 barely moving. Yeah, but you have to get there. You have to set yourself up, close up, go down. You've got the wrap up <laughs> again, the clean up. It, it's it's still a lot of work for that short period of time. Oh, but it's so worth it. Do you know, I was just in Rarotonga a couple of weeks ago, lucky me, um, and we went for a dive. First time, I do like to dive in more mirror waters because it's pretty, pretty cold diving in New Zealand. So I often wait until I get a moment. So we, we did get a dive and um, 25 metres away from us were humpback whales and they were calling. So I've never divin, divin, oh my gosh, dove with <laughs> whales before. <laughs> Um, I'll blame that on my son. I'm picking up all his endings at the moment. It's really funny. Um, but um, yeah, so they were 25 metres away and you could hear them as if they were right next to you. It was a mum and her calf. It was incredible. Oh. That was just, yeah, sorry. Just sheer, sheer, no, sheer. That, that is quite something. So I said we'd touch on Isaac. You also yes. do a load for Isaac itself. Oh, yes. Secretary. Yeah, secretary of ISAC. What, what you make the notes? What? Yeah, that's right. What minutes? That's that's me, the minute taker. No, uh, no, no. It's um, it's incredible. You know, like it's. Uh, I did a I did a long stint with the Australasian Cytometry Society, and I think um, I left it in better shape than what I found it. And um, and so other two other key people in my life besides Bill Telford are um. Uh, Paul Wallace and Kathy Muirhead. So they're my proliferation people. That's how I met them. Actually, Bill, mate, yeah, there, there they are. Look, aren't they cute? Um, and so we, that's us, the dream team together. Um, oh, so now I'm the dream team. I've just put uh, myself oh, right Yeah, in. that's right. You just replaced me. Who needs yeah. Photoshop when you've got Zoom? <laughs> 
so yeah so what happened was when I was working with Bill he's obviously he does a lot of with apoptosis and at some point he was very generous with his um with his space and he'd been asked to give a workshop at, at a cyto and said you know why don't you come along and do proliferation like you be life and I'll be death and we can do this talk and so he like held a little bit of space for me and I was really junior and I'd done a couple of you know CFS proliferation assays with CFSC so I was like oh, okay I'm not really an expert but of course if somebody says that you're going to teach on it then you become you read a lot so I read a lot and I did those um, couple of sessions with him and then when I was in Spain, he introduced me to Kathy and Paul and said, you know, look, these guys are the proliferation gurus. Like they've got this long history of proliferation and teaching and they know everything. And they were talking about doing a module for CytoU and they needed, they were interested in the fact that I might be willing to help. So I got involved and that was incredible, you know, because the one thing that we don't have here in New Zealand, while we can collaborate um, and it's easier nowadays, you know, I don't have, I can't walk across town or drive across town or many other places where I can find, you know, the type of cytometry experts and expertise that you have around. You know, I came to see you in York, as you remember once, uh, and, you know, like you've got L London, it's close, you know, there's so yeah. much going on in Europe. You've got, there's so much there. And so for me, having people like that, like mentors who can really, who are willing to share their, their knowledge. And I mean, I feel like I, I work for it as well. You know, I sing for my supper and, um, you know, put in the, the hours that I need. And so those two, obviously Paul Wallace went on to be president of ISAC um, and he's a dear friend and, and colleague now. I've known him for, you know, I don't know, 12 years or something. And um, he and and Kathy were, were like, you you should think about getting involved with ISAC, you know. And so um, I did. I started with the SRL Emerging Leader Task Force um, with Adrian and Co. And I guess I um, got recognised. Uh, actually, I think I got recognised a little bit by other people in ISAC when I um, co-hosted the Cyto Asia in Singapore. So that was a conference that was held between the Australasian Cytometry Society, ISAC, and the Singapore um, Immunology Network. Um, and yeah, I don't know, made a bit of a name for myself as somebody who does stuff, gets stuff done. Um, and then, um, you know, put my hat in the ring to be secretary. And oh, I got voted on to council first, actually. I was on council two years before someone said the, the role of secretary was coming up and did you want to look at it? And of course, I think you really need, if you're going to, they're the volunteer societies, but if you want to do justice, then you, you need to put in some time. So I did talk to the director and say, you know, is this something you think I can do? Excuse me, time-wise, is there enough time for me to actually, are you willing to let me do this? And he said, yes. And so, yeah, I do spend quite a bit of time, at least a day a week, being secretary of ISAC. I, th I think it's an important point, actually. So you, you've obviously with the ACS and Isaac, and it's helped promote your name onto the international arena. You know, it's not easy to do that. And it doesn't come, doesn't come, uh, it's not given to anyone. You don't just get there, you have to earn it. Yeah. And, you, and you have to, you have to give in, you have to put in effort. Yeah. And so, you know, you put the effort in. You, I, fortuitous maybe that Adrian said, go for it. Uh, you know yeah. so he had the, he could see it in you to start yeah. with so he encouraged you to take that step you took that step you then took the isaac step which which puts you straight bang bang onto the international scene you're up there in front of thousand people at cyto yeah uh, but that's important to the maligan as well because it's important you know, I mean, it, they have the profile and your researchers have the profile because it makes them surely easier for them to get their grant accepted because they know if they ask for a really complicated experiment, a reviewer is going to go, ah, yes, but it's at the Maligan, they can do it. Yeah, you know, that's right. I think it's really lifted our, our profile, you know, and our brand, if you like. Um, and uh, we just put in for some IRO funding and uh, for um, uh, independent research organisation funding with the Health Research Council. And I mean, we won't find out till next year, but I got approached, um, you know, they went to the, the PIs got approached to say, let's get letters of support um, from your colleagues to say, you know, if the Maligan didn't exist, 
you know, what would that do to, to our collaborators? And because we do have international collaborators and because I, I am, you know, known, I could reach out to a lot of amazing people. I mean, we have incredible people in our society and ask them for letters of support and they were really generous and they gave them. And the director was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You know, like it was really, really thankful. And so I think it's a, it's a two-way street. I think, you know, you, you invest the time and you can do it. There are a number of reasons, you know, you could be for personal reasons or professional reasons or, um, you know, for a challenge. Like personally, one of the reasons that I, I like this is because I like to grow and challenge. And um, I kind of have a philosophy, it's not mine, it's Brene Brown's, but it's the, I'm here to get it right and not be right. And so I don't mind making mistakes. And, and I think if you, if you set the bar too high that you think you have to be perfect and you have to know everything, then you're, you'll stop yourself. You know, the bar will be so high that you won't be able to get the momentum to get over it. But I feel like I'm a good enabler of people and I can pull groups together. And I've always, in all my school reports and all my life, it's always said, oh, she's a natural leader, you know, whatever that means. But I think I listen and, um, and I don't feel like I'm, it's a Spanish saying, uh, the, the owner of the truth. I don't think I have the one way and I know the way. In fact, I'm pretty certain I don't know the way, but I can find the people who do. And I think networking and the International Society is the perfect place to, to get, the, get that knowledge. And in my role, uh, like, so for the Secretary of ISAC, I'm the chair of the governance committee. And so, you know, I assembled this committee with, um, with people that I thought could get the job done, who can help me. Um, and it's about airing their opinions around what we're doing and finding the, the way forward and then galvanizing everybody towards one goal. And I think a big part of it, a big part of what I do in general is just organize. I seem to be a good organizer. <laughs> so I can organize thoughts and I can organize people and I can crack the whip and make sure stuff gets done. Um, and I and I guess the other skills that um, that Isaac enjoys from me, maybe we see the, the fruits of my labor. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think I think um, a lot of people think that it's only for a certain type of people or only for certain career stages. But I don't think so. I think if anyone wants to actually do the work, then you know, come on in. There's a society, there's a there's a spot in the society, and there's a place on so many committees that need people who are dedicated and willing to give it a go. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I'll just echo that. Whether it be Isaac, whether it be ACS, whether it be the Royal Microscopical Society, it is for people of all stages of careers. <coughs> Part of societies is to enable people to develop their careers as well. And there's always a role. And so to so, so age uh status doesn't make a big difference it's capability that's really important and i'll just say don't if anyone's listening they're thinking oh great so you just take everyone's ideas and put them together but no you also have your own ideas <laughs> look at your publications yeah. again you know you have the yeah. vision as well so you have to have both yeah. <laughs> but also the acknowledgement so i think these are i i, I did look at your cv you, thank you for sending it through how many prizes so well no 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 no, not that many prizes that's over there that's like the one prize the rest have just been finalists which i think finalists is great because what? it raises the profile but you don't have the work right. you don't have to go and talk at all the events afterwards so you get the profile right. i don't have all the pictures this is obviously one yeah so this one is me at the um, next magazine woman of the year and i think that was in the science and innovation category well, that's that was the category I was in, and all of those yeah. women were in the were finalists. That, that's pretty year. amazing. Yeah, no, that was that was pretty amazing. And so there's that, and I've been um, I was finalist. Uh, oh yeah, there we go for the um, high the high tech inspiring individual award, um, the IBM. Uh, that was this year, uh, and that was a very swanky affair and it was amazing to be you know nominated and um and and amongst so many incredible people and i think again like raising our, our profile because this is cytometry you know this is this is putting cytometry among most of the most of the people in the room they're startup companies you know they're all making mega bucks and with amazing gadgets but this is a, a science tool so i feel like whenever um our name is up there with me then you get to promote cytometry 
and get people excited about technology and technology and science and how it can lead to innovation. How would you even get nominated for these? Who's, who's doing the nominations? Is this the Maligan thinking, look, we've got something great here. Are they putting you forward and promoting it, which is, how does it happen? Yeah. Some, well, some of it's a mixed bag. I mean, we're a, we've got um, a comms department. So sometimes comms will be like, you know, she must have done enough to get her name in one of these things. And then they write something, but it has to be good, you know, because you have to get shortlisted yeah, and then you get interviewed. And, you know, it's actually a rigmarole to just get to finalist. Um, and other times, um, I, I, one time I got a nomination from a student, actually, at the Mulligan who was just like, oh, she's been so helpful. And, and you know, I don't, I, I don't know that a lot of the staff here know what I do. You know, ISAC's not that well known at the, yeah, <laughs> the Mulligan. I mean, obviously people know that I'm the secretary, but we know, we've been to Sido's, we know what it means. Um, and so I think probably a lot of people don't quite know all the other hats that I wear. They see me as the, the core facility manager, maybe. So I, I don't think you won this prize. <laughs> no, I know, but do you oh, know this what? Is, this is your, your house, and this is the rugby world. <laughs> this is the Web Outs Cup. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that should be shown there. Yeah, so well, so it turns out that I know somebody who whose job it was to take that to places, you know, to where it was supposed to be at, you know, and, and maybe it just detoured via my house for a quick photo and then carried on to where it was supposed to go. But that is the Web Alice Cup, yes, that was, and there was just one random night, a knock at the door, I was making dinner, and a friend was like, hey, I was like, hey, what do you got, what's in that box? Oh, you won this, oh, thank you. Yeah, I know, I know, it was, it was a really surreal moment, those moments, you're like, I can't even believe it, but yeah, that, that happened. So how good was the replica that you switched it for? <laughs> Pretty good, they haven't noticed yet. <laughs> we, we're actually really close to the hour, I can't believe this. Uh, some quick questions. Are you an yes. early bird or night owl? Uh, oof, but both. Okay. Hedge my bets. But, uh, yeah, and actually, if you're doing all those different activities, they dovetail at uh, the, the end of the day. PC yeah, or I mean, Mac? That, sorry, what was that? PC or Mac? Mac. Okay. And what's your favourite food? Mm, uh, Asian fusion Thai. Spicy. I'm sure I had a picture of you cooking somewhere. And I can't find it quickly. Not to worry. Oh, yeah, it was me and Lau. What's your least favourite food? Uh, I don't really like mushrooms. Can handle a little bit of mushrooms, but yeah, mushrooms. Yeah, if they're just too mushroomy, no. So you haven't got mushroom for fungi then? Not mushroom, uh, yeah. Sorry. Ch chocolate or cheese? Cheese. Cheese. Yeah, chocolate. Cheese, yes. So, so I guess this one's a no-brainer then. Beer or wine? Ooh, uh, wine. Yeah, well, cheese, you've got to be red or white. Uh, red. Yeah, again, cheese, kind of has to yeah. be. Tea or coffee? <laughs> coffee. Espresso or cappuccino? Uh, flat white, thanks. <laughs> Oh, go halfway between, why don't you? Actually, that's no, close to cappuccino in all fairness. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favourite movie? Um, Do you get Shawshank. time to watch movies? Oh, yeah, sometimes, sometimes. On the uh, to America. Yeah, yeah, they were the best ones. I get really emotional on planes when I'm watching movies. It's like too much. I don't know what it is. There'll be the couple of glasses of red you had and no interruptions. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's the, it's the free time. It's the air up there. Um, I reckon uh, Shawshank Redemption and Goodwill Hunting. Okay. Do you watch? Any, do you ever get to watch any trashy TV? No, I don't really like trashy TV. I don't like TV. You know, TV for TV's sake. So you don't watch TV at all? Oh, you know, I'll watch, an, I'll watch something on Netflix. I'll watch an episode. But no, not trashy. That just does my head in. Okay. So book or TV? Book. What are you reading at the moment? I'm reading. Um, I, I never have one because it depends on my mood. So I've got 
three books on my night table. Um, one is uh, When the Coffee Gets Cold, Till the Coffee Gets Cold. It's by a, a Japanese author. Um, and that's kind of my like holiday, don't have to think much book. Um, and then um, uh, one about, I like philosophy. And so I'm reading about the, like the, how to lead a good life. And it's about um, stoicism and like the school of philosophy, the Stoics. And that's really interesting. Um, and the other one is um, Not Without Peril. And that's like a story of all the misadventures of all these people that went hiking in the, um, in the presidential ranges in, the, in New Hampshire over like the last ages, 150 years of disasters hiking. It's pretty cool. <clears throat> I'm still, so you're reading three books. I can't believe you actually get time to read a book. Well, no, that, that, they've been there for a long time. I might, you know, it depends. I'm like, oh, I'm in the mood for this one. And I read one page. We don't advance far anymore. Uh, it, it's crazy. Our time is up, but you did send a, a couple of other pictures. You obviously got uh, German connections. Oh, yeah. So I lived in, in Germany when I was 16. I did a student exchange and um, they, I have this weird thing where I have these people, there's the, the Familia Kraft, that I love to bits and pieces. They're my mama, my papa and my host brothers and sisters. So I've got a couple of families in Germany. So if I go to Oldenburg, I actually feel like I come from Germany. This is my the Schuttgerts, my other favourite family who I love to bits. And I honestly could go back there and live there as if I was German. That's, yeah, quite amazing. And this is you when you got married. I thought this, these deserve, I thought a quick mention at least. Yeah, so I'm reading my vows in Spanish. Um, I didn't memorize them, but uh, I, I got them. I got Feather's brother to translate my vows that I wrote in English um, into Spanish and I read them. And so Feather's blushing because him, uh, he hadn't heard them. So where did you get married then well we got married here in wellington uh low key zero cost very good um and um went to a registrar's office did the signing went to an argentinian restaurant for dinner um and so we did the ceremony here and then we flew to um argentina to spend time with his family and they we kind of had a mini ceremony over there as well so you say low cost <clears throat> the photographer obviously cost a bit of money no that was our mate well our climbing mate and he took all the photos I mean honestly it was no cost my friend made the flowers my mum bought the dress for like 300 bucks um I asked everyone to buy their own dinner instead of buying us a present just pay for your own dinner my dad bought the wine and our friend we gave him a bottle of wine and he took our photos can you believe it love it no when you said your friend I thought it might have been Adrian Smith I know he's a quite an awesome no, as well no but it's, it's a, remember when we were going to visit a friend in in Leeds when we came yeah. to see you that was Will he took those photos oh He's wow from Leeds. Yeah. small world small world so Adrian small must have, he must have been in his prime when he met him then as well when he was over <laughs> <laughs> photography yes yeah that yeah just incredible picture that you had there but it does worry me that you did it all on the cheap and everyone was paying for their own dinner did they not pay you a salary at Malligan? yeah but I don't like waste you know I don't like waste I don't want fanfare and I and I you know why buy stuff I don't like too much stuff I don't need stuff I'd rather spend it on travel travel and climbing and friends and food yeah and I, I didn't get through all the, the the travel pictures throughout it but that's <laughs> fine <laughs> I guess a lot of those are holidays, but some of those will be, they're not perks of the job necessarily, because some you know, a fair bit no. of travelling is, is essential and it's not necessarily a perk, but you do get to see different places. Oh, I know. I mean, that's another thing about being a scientist. You know, when no one told me when, when I was thinking about science that you actually get to travel the world, like you might get paid rubbish, but you can travel the world, which is pretty amazing. So a lot of the times whenever there's a cyto, like the one in Florida, as I looked around for what can I do that that excites me and I went to Costa Rica by myself for and did some hiking in the forest there which was incredible you know and it cost me like $200 from Florida and imagine flying from New Zealand to Costa Rica not $200 so yeah, yeah we're lucky it's a good field I can say salaries can't be that bad and I'll just point out actually certainly York and a lot in the UK you know our positions are fairly well paid you know 
the, the, the yeah, that's right. respectful of the positions and very appropriate salaries, salaries, I think, and the opportunities are there to grow. So these roles can be really good. You know, they, yeah, they are I mean, I don't mean to, yeah, the thing, you know, if you've got a, my husband works in the government. And so, you know, like the, the government and the government pays different to what scientists do. But I think, you know, I think core facility staff do well. Yeah, um, and, you know, they're great careers. Uh, yeah, it's been an amazing career. And what one thing that the director said that I really liked is, um, you know, if everybody at the Institute loses their job because of, you know, their funding, he's like, as long as there's one scientist still standing, then they'll need you, you know, like you have got more protection in a core facility, I think, from the whims of the funding world, the science funding world, than, um, than outside of it. So no, it's, it's been an incredible career thus far, but I feel like I'm still young, got lots to do. Lots of ideas. And I think you've proven the case that to take those roles, you have to have the passion and you have to have the drive and you have to do the work to make it. So Carly, on that note, we are over the hour, so we need to wrap. So thank you so much for joining me today. Everyone who's watched or listened, uh, please do subscribe or keep looking at the other flow stars. Uh, You mentioned Paul Wallace earlier, so he'll be up. So look out for Paul Wallace. Uh, and many of the others that, that we know so well. Kylie, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Peter.